Hello, captives and captive friends, and welcome to episode 47 of the Global Captive Podcast, supported by legacy specialists R&Q and hosted by me, Richard Kutcher. Over the next 30 minutes or so, we are going to be focused on the Asia-Pacific region with guests joining us from Singapore, Australia, and Hong Kong. I will introduce our guest co-host in just a moment, but in the second half of the episode, we'll be discussing employee benefits with Juliet Queck of Maxis Global Benefits Network, and in our captive owner interview, Nigel Jones, insurance manager at Australian freight and rail company Horizon, will discuss his risk financing strategy and the role their captive plays. If you are new to the Global Captive podcast, uh, then the best way to explore our extensive back catalogue and receive every new episode direct to your device is to subscribe on any podcast app. Just search for us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you get your podcasts from and click subscribe or follow. So on with GCP 47, and I'm delighted to welcome Stuart Herbert, practice leader for Marsh Captive Solutions in Asia Pacific, as my guest co-host. Stuart, you're following in the footsteps of a few of your your Marsh colleagues around the world as, as being a co-host of the Global Captive podcast. So, uh, so welcome to the pod. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here. Good stuff. Great to have you on, Stuart. Um, there's a lot to get through over the next uh, 30, 40 minutes, but I, I thought a good way to, to set this up is for those listeners who are new to the Asia captive market, perhaps for you to provide some outline of, of the key captive domiciles in the region and, and their unique or, or specific characteristics. Yeah, sure, Richard. I think there really is um, two dominant domiciles in, in Asia at the moment. One would be uh, Singapore, which was really one of the first in the region to establish captives. Uh, and the next one is, is Labuan, which is a, a little island East Malaysia. And uh, I suppose... Singapore being one of the founders, obviously had first move advantage many years ago, 30 plus years ago. It's attracted a large clientele from Australia and uh, that's really their their niche. It's very focused on corporate risk, but having appropriate uh, governance and investment restrictions around that. Lebuan on the other side is really, they call themselves a midshore location. So it works well for Malaysian risk as well as international, although you know, they are expanding their international footprint, but it's probably not as large as Singapore. One of the other ones that has often been talked about is Hong Kong as a captive domicile. And um, that's been fits and starts if we think about an international clientele uh, and had been and is often thought about as being primarily for the China market uh, with uh, three captives based in Hong Kong, which are all Chinese state-owned enterprise sponsored. Um, however, there have been more recent uh, discussions with the Hong Kong Insurance Authority about perhaps trying to make it more international and looking at how their rules work. And so it'll be interesting to see that one develop, whether they can marry both you know, developing the China market and, and leveraging off that, as well as the more international. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I kind of definitely echo those comments around around Hong Kong. There seems to be a kind of an annual discussion around if 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 they'll kind of move forward uh, with kind of enhancing their their captive offering. But Singapore and and Level One are certainly kind of at the forefront of of people's minds in in the Asia region. We'll come on to new formations a bit later in the episode, Stuart. But is there a typical profile of existing captive owner in the region, particularly if we're thinking about Singapore and, and Lab One, have, have certain business sectors or, or risk profile embrace captive utilization faster, faster than others? 
I'd actually say it's similar to when we produce sort of our, our global landscape where we talk about financial institutions being a very large user of captives. I mean, I, I would say in, in Asia-Pacific, clients who have large property risks that need insuring uh, are certainly were the forerunners of captives and continue to be a good source of captives. So that crosses all industries. So, for example, you have Nigel Later, which is transport. We, you know, you have manufacturing. We've got semiconductor firms. You have a whole spectrum, but a lot have been centered around large property risks. And then we've seen an evolution of that into, you know, financial lines. So professional indemnity for banks or engineering firms that do design and build. So there isn't really a, a unique stamp that says, oh, Asia is any different to anyone else, really. Um, I think they follow similar lines, and a lot of it hinges around the largest spend. And for a lot of Asia-Pacific clients, that large spend is property in some nature. So where the difference might be more profound would be in, in kind of the, the speed of take-up of captives or just the sheer number of captives which are owned by uh, businesses in the region, whether they're domiciled in, in the region or, or domiciled elsewhere. We've had Frank Baron from from Prima and International SOS discuss this with us last year, but why do you think it has been a harder sell of a captive proposition to the Asian risk management community? Have, have, why have they been perhaps a little bit slower to embrace captives? For a long time, the insurance rates, while increasing, have been very competitive. So it's often that decision around, do I take risk and use my own capital or do I keep buying insurance, which is still relatively competitive. And so we've seen that for, for a long time. I think one of the other aspects about uh, Asia is just the complexity. So you have you know, many Asian countries that have their own particular rules. Some have control foreign company rules, some don't. Some have omitted insurance rules. So if you have to have a, a local insurer who has to front all the business and then reinsure out to a captive, that makes the whole proposition more complex. And so a lot of Asian clients, have, you know, by the time they do all these steps and look at all the costs associated, in align with you know, their relatively competitive pricing, it was never really a major incentive for them to assume more and more risk. And so I think that really kept them off the boil in going to captive formations. Whereas obviously with the more challenging market conditions now, that is starting to change and we're having you know considerably more conversations. So you mentioned, when we were talking about domiciles, you mentioned uh, Singapore obviously being uh, kind of the go-to jurisdiction for Australian-owned businesses. In terms of kind of captive take-up utilization from the Australian and, and New Zealand market, how, how has that developed over time? And, and do you see continued interest from, from those markets in forming captives? Because I, I know that New Zealand actually, for, for a little while, was actually a home, home to quite a few captives and was kind of, if you're a New Zealand company, you'd keep your captive in, in New Zealand. Yeah, so I mean, just addressing the New Zealand one. So there were some very liberal rules previously. Uh, New Zealand changed those rules and it's less attractive. It's more onerous and more likely to be a commercial insurer if you stay in New Zealand. And, and that's obviously not good for captives given the nature of what uh, risks they write and the, the related party nature. So while there are still a number of captives in New Zealand because they were set up and, and effectively are continuing under the framework, we generally see new New Zealand formations being made outside of New Zealand itself. And, and just last year, we put on some new New Zealand business in Singapore. And I think we are seeing continued growth out of the Pacific, so Australia and New Zealand principally. And um, you know the challenging market conditions, 
the focus during the, you know, arguably through the COVID um, process of people concentrating on their spend and what value that they get for it. We've certainly seen a, a massive acceleration of interest. We put on five Pacific-based captives in Singapore alone last year. You know, that's, that's double to, to three times what we would see in a normal year. And we do studies at a similar rate. So there is a lot of pent-up interest continuing. And um, now the Pacific represents about 55% of all the captives in Singapore. So it is a very large player. Having said that, Asia, where we have Japanese Singapore domestic companies that set up as well, uh, Taiwan as well, they, they represent 23%. So they're still quite a large player. But certainly the growth in the last year, and I suspect the growth of this year, will still be dominated by the Pacific region. Yeah, and we're going to come on to uh, more specifically around around that formation activity in the second half. But talking of the Pacific, our captive owner interview uh, for this episode is with, with Nigel Jones, insurance manager at Australian Freight and Rail Company, Horizon. Nigel discussed the current and future use of Horizon's Singapore captive, which was formed in 2014. But he began by giving us some background on the company itself. Horizon is a, um, Australia's largest rail freight operator. Um, it's uh, on the Australian Stock Exchange. Uh, it's a top 50 company on the on the ASX. Uh, it has been around for about 150 years, uh, so around 150 years experience in the rail freight sector. Most of that time was a as a government-owned corporation, uh, and in 2010, 2011, um, it separated out of government and then became a public-listed company. So essentially, Horizon is a uh, integrated rail company. So by that I mean we we own rail infrastructure by way of the track, uh, which is two thousand six hundred and eighty kilometres of coal network in in central Queensland. So we own the track, but we also are an above rail operator uh, on our own track or on third party infrastructure as well. So essentially, we move around two hundred and fifty million tonnes of commodities, uh, consisting principally of coal, iron ore mineral and agricultural products, revenue of about just over three billion and uh, employees were just short of uh, 5,000 employees. Really got a significant size company. Again, you know, obviously being up here in the UK, not a company I'd heard of, but uh, certainly mm. the kind of profile company we often do talk to in terms of size. So yeah. you joined the company in, in 2011, which was, I think you said the company went public in 2010. What was your first priority regarding uh, kind of getting hold of the insurance pro- programs and, and working out what's going on there? Yeah, I'd already had a little bit of background uh, on the Horizon insurance program. I, I was their broker for many years, so I had a reasonable insight as to what needed to be done. But essentially, when I got to Horizon, I had a three-year plan that I put together uh, looking to culminate in a, at, the, at the end of the day with a captive feasibility study and the uh, implementation of a captive strategy. But one thing I wanted to do initially was to make sure that the program that we had was uh, fit for purpose. So really from that, we needed to understand what our risk profile was, uh, make sure that we did a detailed review of the, uh, the policy wording to make sure that that matched our risk profile uh, but also making sure that things like the insured, insurance values that we declared to the insurance market were adequate and appropriate and met the needs of the uh, of the basis of settlement under the policy. So that involved doing independent property valuations and uh, doing the business interruption uh, forensic review. So essentially the first real priorities were making sure that the, the program was fit 
uh, and uh, we got claims under control as well before we then started to think about the strategy of a captive uh, and uh, whether we wanted one and what that might look like. Yeah, so once you'd done, done that exercise and you started having discussions about whether a captive was the right fit, was there one deciding factor or what was the characteristics of the risk profile and, and the insurance programs that made a captive the, the right strategy for, for you? Well, we'd actually already had um, self-insured retentions uh, similar to what you'd probably have with a captive anyway, um, but we were prepared to take more risk. One of, one of the catalysts was the, the fact that we'd, we'd had a couple of claims uh, over a number of years, a number of derailments, so it wasn't catastrophic, but when we went to the insurance market for, uh, for renewals for a couple of years, certainly the insurance market were dictating terms to us by way of uh, increased retentions and uh, in- increased premiums. So great for the insurance market and the fact that they got the increased premiums and we got the increased retention. So we were taking more risk. So we're saying, well, if we're happy to take risk, maybe we need a vehicle to do that. Uh, and essentially what we wanted to do was use a captive vehicle to drive the insurance market rather than the insurance market driving us in respective outcomes. So take more control of our own destiny, uh, take more risk that we're prepared to do. And uh, looking for a captive was the, one of the, the right strategy in that respect. One of the biggest stories of this this hard market, and obviously the captive was was in place well in advance of the hard market, has been the DNO rates, and Australia often comes up as one of the most hard, badly hit for some quite some time. I think Nigel for a few years now, DNO rates have kind of skyrocketed. Is DNO a line? Considering that your captive is is five or six years old, is is DNO a line that you've discussed adding to the captive at all? It is something that we've discussed, and you're, you're quite right, Richard. The, the, the DNO market in Australia over the last probably four or five years has been extremely volatile, and, and every every year seems to get worse and worse. There's uh, a lot less capacity around, uh, for, particularly for public listed companies. Uh, there's premium increases and coverage cutbacks as well, uh, but the premium increases have been very significant over a, quite a number of years. Uh, but we did actually look at that and consider it. there are some limitations in Australia in, in relation to the Corporations Act. Uh, so you can't essentially put side A under a captive anyway. But uh, my view has always been that you know when you're putting risk into a captive. Uh, it needs to be something that's not subject to significant volatility from a claims point of view and is something that you understand and can manage the risk appropriately. DNO doesn't really fall into that when you've got uh, security class actions claims, which is pretty much what has been impacted the insurance market from a DNO perspective. So when you've got an average security class actions claim of around about 50 million, you're putting in a lot of volatility into a, into a, into a captive. Uh, particularly with long tail, uh, long legal legal costs that could be incurred as well. So uh, in my view, we considered it, but um, certainly not something that we would want to do given the, the volatility around the, the, the DNO market in particular. Uh, we've essentially been using our captive for our property and liability placements. And uh, anecdotally, a lot of organisations do something similar. So um, I know there seems to be a lot of discussions around using captives or, you know, renter cells for, for DNO, but also considering that you're captive, you can only probably hold so much capacity within the captive anyway. Uh, so if you're buying a pretty reasonable limit, as ASX companies do, you essentially have to go back into the insurance market to buy reinsurance anyway. Uh, and given the lack of capacity in the market, most likely 
we're back talking to the same insurers who probably participate in the insurance program anyway. So um, if DNO is one that you have considered but decided that that's a no for yourselves, are there other lines of, uh, of insurance which, or, or programs which you think you might consider for the captive uh, in the longer term? Certainly we are. Um, one of the things that we did, uh, I mentioned that we, we did do some work around our captive and what we might use it for uh, in future. We, we were quite content with what we had insured un, under the uh, under the captive with the property and the liability. That doesn't mean to say that we weren't prepared to take more risks. So over a period of time, we've looked at, you know, does it make sense to increase the uh, the retentions that we have in the captive? So once again, take more risk ourselves and have less reliance on the insurance market. But Given the state of the insurance market, which has been quite soft conditions over a number of years uh, up until recently, uh, it didn't really make sense to do that. But now that the uh, the market in Australia, as elsewhere, has uh, has hardened quite significantly in the last 12, 12 or eighteen months or so, we are seeing a reduction in capacity around the the property placement. Uh, so, really, at the moment, we're in a position where we have a strong captive in place. It has been in place since 2014 uh, and we're in a position where if for whatever reason we cannot get uh, 100% placement uh, and we are shortfall in capacity, uh, we have the captive in place that can step in and take on holes uh, or gaps that we may have in our property placement in particular. So just lastly, Nigel, obviously, as we've mentioned, we are in a hard market, lots of interesting captives again, and I, and I believe that there's been quite a few new formations of captives Australian business in the last 12 months as well. Are you hearing that interest from your your peers in the risk management community locally? And what would you, if you could give two key uh, benefits or advantages that you gain from having the captive in place, what, what would they be? Well, certainly captives and the implementation of a captive strategy has been very topical uh, in Australia. We've mentioned about the, the DNO market, but uh, also the hard market. A lot of organisations are looking at that now. So I've had a number of my peers uh, contact me, talk about the process that we went through and the the advantages and disadvantages of a captive. Uh, one of the first things I say is, unfortunately, if you're looking to have a captive in place that gives you some insulation from the, the current hard insurance market, um, they've missed the boat. Um, really, when you're setting a captive, it's probably best to have it in place in a, in a soft market so that when the, when the market does change, uh, the captive is well set up, has a strong balance sheet. But I think one of the key things that I talk to peer organisations about is you know, the, st- uh, the stability of cost over time. Uh, so obviously one of the benefits of having a captive is you can kind of flatten out the peaks and troughs that you would normally see in various market cycles. So that does give you the advantage of having uh, some stability over cost over time. Uh, but I think one of the main things as well is that when you have premium that you put into your captive, uh, where you may, in fact, you know, alternatively be into the conventional insurance market and you put premiums into an insurer, uh, you won't see that premium again. Uh, when you have your own captive, uh, it is wholly owned captive, so you get to retain the premium. The advantage is that you can put it into a loan arrangement so that you can loan funds back to the parent company. Um, you can issue, uh, if the timing's right and the, and the captive is performed very well, you can issue dividends back into the parent company. So, yeah, so there's a number of benefits that you get to the organisation in respect to the stability of cost over time. Uh, taking a long-term view is, is the, one of the key messages as well. Uh, and also the, the financial benefit that the organisation can get by being able to utilise some of the funds that, uh, that sit in the captive through, through a uh, formal loan agreement. 
The Global Captive podcast is supported by RQ, the award winning provider of exit solutions for legacy liabilities and companies in runoff. RQ can provide a wide range of solutions and has A rated paper across the United States and Europe. LPTs, novations, business transfers, and acquisition are all frequently used and tailored to the seller's requirement, whether in runoff or fully active but seeking greater efficiency. If you have legacy, you should talk to RQ. Welcome back to the Global Captive Podcast, where I am joined by Stuart Herbert of Marsh Captive Solutions based in Singapore. It was really good to hear that captive owner experience from Nigel there. But let's let's have a chat about new formation activity as you started to touch upon in the region. I don't think there has been official publications on statistics yet from Level 1 and Singapore for 2020. But I understand Level 1 formed eight new captives. I think that's unofficially not confirmed yet uh, during the year. And Singapore, when I checked towards the end of last year, was around a similar number. Stuart, what what level of activity have you been experiencing uh, within your offices in the region over over the past 12 months? And, And what's been driving that? Yeah, so within the last last 12 months, there's been eight formations of captives for us, you know, and that's out of a portfolio that we manage of around 55 uh, captives now. So, you know, it's pretty significant growth, a lot of interest and, um, you know, across the board from industry perspectives. So I think what really drives this and whether they go to, to Singapore or whether they go to Labuan or ultimately whether they go to somewhere like Hong Kong, it is really driven around that that risk retention decision and along the lines of you know fitting with risk tolerance. We have challenging market conditions. You know, there are price uh, issues and uh, difficulties within certain pockets. And so that really focuses the insured's mind on you know, what are they buying and how can they uh, maximize their spend. And um, that, along with all the work we've done in the past, is really seeing things come, come home to roost, as it were. So there was a significant growth in formations last year. And I suspect there will be probably maybe not quite as much, but uh, similar growth broadly this year. Um, and that's really just driven with the market conditions and driven with people needing to demonstrate, I suppose, more efficiency in their purchasing. Often is a signal, and it was that where previously we may have worked with the clients to understand the value of a captive to them, and it may have been marginal in uh, different market conditions and now has become uh, much more relevant and practical for them. And what I also think is very important beyond the pure dollar saving that a captive may be able to achieve for you is the strategic use. So we're seeing a lot of people where that used to be parked a little bit because there was no, no dollar numbers associated with it and it was hard to explain, to now actually seeing very clearly that you know some of the old adages of accessing reinsurance markets, even captives just fronting risk, uh, to help bring capacity are all coming to the forefront. And that is certainly getting people's attention. Yeah, absolutely. And this is an observation which is uh, by no means uh, unique to to Asia Pacific. But one thing I've heard from uh, particularly the European market as well is that lots of companies that had the discussion around captive if did a feasibility study, say, three or four years ago, as you say, maybe the immediate impact wasn't so great and now coming back to the table. So is, is the hard market kind of almost accelerating, giving that push and accelerating that decision-making process, which used to be perhaps not a priority. Now it's, it's kind of rising up the agenda. Certainly the, the market conditions, some clients or a you know, spectrum of clients experience is certainly raising the profile of risk management and the insurance spend within the organization. 
And so, you know, that then prompts questions from people on the board level saying, well, what are we doing to manage this? And I think that's where it tends to link in neatly to sort of the, the captive or even a protected cell type concept to say, well, how can we change the dynamics that it works in our favor more reasonably? Do we have the ability to take more control of our program and try and influence greater? And that's that's difficult in a new captive. Arguably a bit easier if you had an established captive that's got some um, resources behind it. And I think that's that's the other thing we've seen. While new formations are, are certainly happening at a rate that's um, unusual for Asia, beyond that, we are seeing existing clients. Many clients were monoline, single line of insurance. And we are certainly seeing those expand. So, you know, adding extra lines in now where previously it may have been, well, you know, there's not much savings, so why would we do it? So saying, well... If we can tolerate $50 million of risk in, in this line, why can we not tolerate $5 million in another line and save you know, X dollars? So we certainly see a, a broadening of the use of existing captives as well as new formations. Yeah, and that's almost that hidden growth, isn't it? I know that reports such as the Marsh Captive Landscape Report does capture that growth because you do talk about premium volume going through captives and, and assets under management, but it's it's not the growth that we see from license numbers, but it's equally important, the kind of continual growth and sophistication of, of existing captives. Now, let's turn to uh, employee benefits picture now in the region. I spoke to Juliet Quek, Regional Director with Maxis Global Benefits Network based in Hong Kong, and uh, she told me about the level of interest among Asian businesses in writing international EB through a captive. So, Juliet, how much interest do you currently see from Asian multinationals interested in, in writing employee benefits through their captive? I would reckon that there's abundance of potential opportunity um, because recent year we are also having more discussion with clients which has indicated their interest to use the captive as part of the risk management strategy to fund the employee benefits out there. Then we can see that the uh, companies are also, you know, um, looking at putting the employee benefits risk into the captive, which they already own one, uh, mainly is to diversify from the risk perspective. Because employee benefit risk is typically lower severity, geographically, you know, widespread and uncorrelated to the casualty risk. Now, another um, triggering factor to consider is the rising employee cost which we all know that the medical you know, trend tends to outpace um, inflation in the Asian market. Now, many of the employers are now much more you know, interested to actively you know, outpace this medical trend, but how to do that? Well, they need to take control of it and also you know, come out with the bespoke you know, employee benefits solution. And hopefully with that captive arrangement, they can enhance the terms and condition of their program and which can be negotiated you know, centrally. Now, another um, reason for such a growth you could see a possibility is because of the Asia you know, company tends to um, adopt peer-to-peer kind of comparison out there. For the wall of talent, what it means is that company wants to have flexibility to introduce you know, different types of benefits, to differentiate from their competitors, but going into a captive, that would give them the kind of um, um, flexibility to do so. Now, if you look at between you know 2015 and 2019, um, we have to take 2020 out because it's an um, exceptional year. Uh, the global merger and acquisition market 
where you could see that China and U.S. is leading, accounted about 38% of the deal out there. So currently, the region is still having very low borrowing costs and depressed asset value, which actually presents quite a couple of good you know, acquisition opportunity for business out there. As you can see, more and more Asian colonies expand globally. So they will be revisiting their captive insurance arrangement to capture all these expected growth out there. And lastly, obviously, with the pandemic, it has intensified the interest for the captive to review their business you know, strategy and as well the risk appetite. Because now you know, um, things have changed. We know that employers have also changed the way that um, they have the employee working profile, such as you know, we see much more uh, employee working from home. So with all these um, changes that are out there, if there's an injury from working from home, is this considered as a workman comp claim or is it the employee benefits program claim? So given that so um, all these are birth factor, you could see that you know there will be much more um, interest where it can see that um, they are willing to consider employee benefits into the captive. In terms of uh, specific uh, sectors of business or, or markets, do you expect to see any any particular take up of of EV captive programs from you know particular sectors of of the of the economy? I would say that it varies a lot depending you know on the um, risk, the insurance maturity of the each country or jurisdiction out there. But definitely from the statistic itself, there are high interest um, countries such as like Australia. Um, Japan, which is actually well known for its commercial insurance market, which has total, you know, more than US dollar three six billion out there. Um, Singapore, um, definitely, that's about like um, more than seventy, you know, um, captives set up there, and Malaysia um, in Labuan, more than you know forty captives being set up up there, and obviously um, followed by you know Hong Kong and China, and given that. China has more than, you know, 100 Fortune 500 corporation out there. That's will be the kind of um, expected, you know, uptake, you know, um, in these countries. Well, um, the other thing is um, we all know that Singapore and Hong Kong are both, you know, international financial center. So they have prominent advantages, you know, setting, you know, captive in these two regions, especially the in terms of the um, expertise, the technology, um, the, you know, um, strong, you know, legal system out there. Um, and if you ask me my honest opinion, if you can see that most of the Asia captive setup, mainly from the oil and energy industry, um, logistic and telecommunication. So I would say that these will be the kind of um, profile of the market that I would expect them, you know, to have more of the EB um, captive programs be included. That that certainly makes a lot of sense. So we've we've talked then about some of the drivers of activity for putting employee benefits into a captive in the region. What, what are some of the challenges that are holding back further? adoption of, of um, self-insuring employee benefits through for a captive? So at this moment, um, it's clear that the Asian market is still under development stage. One aspect is awareness because the concept where we talk about captive is being, you know, equate or associated with setting up a fund to pay losses. And the risk manager in Asia, um, obviously, are not as exposed to the multinational, you know, companies like the American and the European market. And the other thing is um, to convince the C-suite 
in, in setting up a captive, you know, um, to include the employee benefit result there, often proven a challenge um, the exploratory stage. Um, that's because employee benefits is um, subject that is um, specific constraints such as like, you know, there's local regulation, there's data, you know, privacy concern as well, and the data availability. So the risk manager struggles, you know, um, to obtain this kind of um, data to analyze the risk exposure and the line of coverage and to add on, you know, the layer of complexity in terms of the reinsurance and other concerns out there. Are there any characteristics of the uh, local um, healthcare and benefits market that are, are unique to Asia and the region? Are there particular types of healthcare uh, which uh, which need to be considered more in Asia than, than other parts of the world? Yes and no. This is a very interesting question. Um, well, Asian market very much is um, not um, different from, I know, different from the other parts of the world. Uh, they are also facing rapid, you know, aging population, urbanization, you know, slowing GDP growth. All, all these are all at the, you know, breakneck kind of speed out there. Now, um, if you look at the insurance market now in this part of the world, it is still a very traditional market and highly regulated. So in that sense, um, if you look at employee benefits itself, Obviously, that's a lot of, you know, life and the medical protection. But in today's context, the insurance company no longer can be, you know, working as a payer and a payee kind of relationship, which means, oh, transferring the risk, and then I pay out the claims, and then, you know, at a turnaround time of X day that I met out there. Uh, this has to change in the market itself, where you can see that now insurance companies um, are actually um, racing, you know, to product development, especially for critical illness. It used to have, you know, maybe covered like 20 um, kind of illness out there. Now you can see in some of the markets like 48, you know, illness are out there because technology has advanced, you know, and stuff like that. Now, and the other part is to also focus on aging population, employer leading group um, protection out there, as well as, you know, innovating underwriting solution. Now, another part that you could see quite prevalence out there in the market is insurance company partnering with vendors, focusing very much on the health and wellness. Um, this is one of the key, you know, topics out there. As we know that in this, you know, COVID, you know, um, situation, mental wellness is one of the hot topics that's um, being discussed by many employers out there. So, uh, so today, I would say that um, in certain parts of Asia, um, it has been developing much faster than some of the um, um, countries, you know, in this region out there where you already have telemedicine, teleconsultation. You have the apps that actually, you know, can do um, the e you know, claim filing. You have a whole network of um, medical providers that's already at your fingertips that you can use the apps out there. So that part has gone, you know, quite um, a bit and, and unique to Asia. And if you work with, you know, um, the medical provider, this will be one of the common, I think, question that's being asked now, that whether you have these kind of support um, from the benefits, you know, market out there. So that was Juliet Quek from Maxis Global Benefits Network talking a little bit of detail about the EB 
side of things in the region. Stuart, I understand that uh, you've actually onboarded a couple of, of, of captives uh, in Singapore last year, which which are right to employee benefits. Um, are they brand new captives that have been set up to write EB or were they existing captives and you're, and you're adding EB to those? So I think, um, yeah, we did. We put a couple on last year. And so we, we've got a handful that write employee benefits now. The ones we established were new for Singapore, but were part of a group that already used uh, captives uh, elsewhere. So, you know, it is interesting to see the level of interest and it was developing reasonably strongly for a while. I think the, the more challenging market has made people step back a little bit and consider, you know, their larger spends, whether that's a property or a liability and sort of try and work to correct that. And then I think we'll be back onto the, the EB push because, you know, like everywhere else in the world, it is an expensive purchase for these organizations and there is no reason why a captive couldn't facilitate as it does for other lines. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that actually brings us on quite nicely to that that next question regarding non-Asian businesses forming captives in, in Singapore or, or Lab One outside of the EB space. And I mean, what? Uh, how often do you see interest from international businesses looking to set up captives in, in the Asia region? And in, in what cases is, is that a suitable uh, solution? In the last few years, we've certainly seen a lot of interest from uh, particularly Europe. That hasn't necessarily led to a large amount of captive formations, but there's uh, a lot of interest in, for example, you know, Singapore or Lebois regulatory and capital and solvency structures, which are obviously very different from solvency too for what we consider to be a pure captive. Um, and so that generally gets some degree of interest. But I think, you know, of the, if we think about the mix of captives in the region, you know, Australia or Australia and New Zealand is a dominant force, but Europeans probably make about 15% of all the captives in Asia. And so while not super massive, it is a reasonable sum. And that can be a mix of some of them have been set up to coordinate their regional programs. Um, as I mentioned, you know, there's, there's lots of different rules throughout uh, Asia. And so sometimes having a more Asian-based captive can facilitate uh, certain aspects of that. Some is that, you know, Singapore has a very well-regarded reputation. They have businesses in Singapore, so it becomes a, a place that perhaps is better than, let's say, the far-flung uh, islands of Bermuda or Cayman or even Guernsey, where perhaps they don't have any operations. And so from you know that adage of substance may be of, uh, of interest to them. So we see, I would say... A, a trickle rather than uh, large waves of people coming over. But it, but it is a slowly growing aspect and I suspect it will continue to occur. Great. Well, that's been really, really useful um, outline, Stuart, for us on on the kind of the, the nuances of, of the Asia Pacific market, both uh, at home in the domiciles closer to home and also internationally as well. And, and that's all we have time for uh, in GCP 47. If you have enjoyed what you've heard over the last 40 minutes, please do be sure to subscribe and spread the work with colleagues, peers, and on LinkedIn. We generally benefit most from word of mouth and, and personal recommendations. So please do keep spreading the word. We do appreciate it. In the meantime, thank you to all three of our guests, Nigel Jones at Horizon, Juliet Quek at Maxis, and of course, Stuart Herbert of Marsh Captive Solutions in Singapore. Stuart, thank you for joining us today. Pleasure. Stay safe, stay well, and see you next time, captives.